Welcome to the Russian Rulers History Podcast, Episode 80, The Great Purges, Part 2. Last episode, Stalin began to remove, or more correctly, either exile or execute all remaining old Bolsheviks, not 100% loyal to him. First, he rids himself of the leftist faction, nominally led by Zinoviev and Kamenev. Now, he sets his sights on the right and his old friend, Bukharin. By now, the arrests of party members was in full force. The fear of seeing the black car full of NKVD agents emptying outside your apartment doors downstairs caused many to leap to their deaths from windows on high. The reason for the high number of suicides was the rumored tortures of all who were arrested. As you know, I like to use quotes from authors of works on Russian history or first-hand accounts to events, but rarely as long as this one by Edvard Radzinski in his book on Stalin. But it so beautifully depicts the time of the purges and why so many confessed to crimes they did not commit. Quote, If he had to appear in court, most prisoners were condemned in camera. He would be carefully rehearsed first. Bear in mind, the investigators would say, that if you make a mistake in court, we shan't just shoot you, we shall torture you. We will tear you limb from limb. They might also suggest that he not be shot at all, that this was just for the press, that all those condemned were in fact spared. During the trial, the investigators sat under the prisoner's nose. Yet as they were at their cruel work, the torturers never stopped talking about the nobler motives for a prisoner to slander himself. It was all for the good of the party and the motherland. To preserve something of their self-respect, the accused would often join in the game. But as one victim of the gulag wrote, behind all the lofty arguments of an ideological and political character, I saw a little imp of fear with a hideous face jigging away. By then, the country was no longer ruled by the party, nor even by Stalin. It was ruled by fear. The Roman historian wrote of the age of Nero that, quote, in the city of fear, people ceased to exist. Nothing but human flesh and bones was left, ready to do whatever he bade them to. It was now the turn of Trotsky's old friend, Alexander Beloborodov, one time head of the Urals Soviet, who had arranged for the execution of the Tsar and his family. Terminally ill with cancer of the throat, holding on to his trousers as they had taken his belt from him, the former head of the Red Urals stood before the interrogators and obediently testified against his former friends, the Trotskyists. But he refused to confess to terrorist activities himself. Stalin to Yezhov, 26 May 37. Isn't it time to put pressure on this gentleman and force him to tell us about his filthy deeds? Where is he supposed to be? In prison or in a hotel? They put pressure on him. They tortured him. They shot him. Did the former boss of the Red Urals ever remember in those terrible days in the cellar in the Apatyev house where the Tsar's wounded son crawled on the floor while they bayoneted the Tsar's daughters? I really heartily recommend reading Radzinski's book on Stalin because it gives a different twist to the man and it gives you a feeling of the fear that was going through the hearts of all these people at the time.
These are truly powerful words. Fear was gripping all of Russia, especially the Communist Party members, who didn't know if they had committed a crime sometime in the past that would be brought against them. They were frightened of saying anything against the state, or God forbid, Stalin. Stalin had achieved his goal of creating a society ready to do anything for him. But more work needed to be done. Now it was his loyal friend Yagoda's turn to feel the torture techniques he so happily developed for his boss. Yezhov was oh so thrilled to purge the NKVD of Yagoda's allies and send them to the same prisons they so gleefully sent others. Some were luckier than others, as they were quickly shot against the Lubvanka wall, cremated and buried, as Radzinski puts it, quote, in the bottomless grave number one in the Donskoy Cemetery with the ashes of all the other victims. This desecration of the name of Dmitri Donskoy, the man who helped save Russia from the Mongol horde, with the ashes of the old Bolshevik revolutionaries who slaughtered without question the czarist sympathizers, was a morose reminder that today's heroes are tomorrow's enemies, depending on the direction of the wind. This is one of the great lessons of history that repeats itself over and over to this day, a lesson few have learned. Bukharin and his rightist friends were now the target of Stalin's psychopathic rage. As Tacitus said about Nero's rage, reign of terror, which so mirrored Stalin's, quote, All this bloodshed wearies the soul and crushes the heart with grief. I ask on favor of the reader to permit me not to feel revulsion for these people who so basely allowed themselves to be destroyed. The one-time friend of Stalin, Bukharin, whose support helped crush Trotsky, Kamenev, Zinoviev, Ryutin, Piatikov, and thousands more, was now allowed to travel to Western Europe in order to set him up for the greatest fall of all the October revolutionaries. Bukharin was a very egotistical and self-assured man, and rightfully so. If any man had the intellectual capacity to rule Russia, Bukharin was the man. If you needed a hard-line, tough man to fight a threat, you couldn't pick a worse person. In Paris, Bukharin ignorantly talked freely to various people, some of whom were NKVD agents. He was setting himself up if he foolishly returned to Russia. But in an incredibly stupid decision in hindsight, as well as should have been in foresight, Bukharin decided to head back to Russia. The trials of Zinoviev and Kamenev were happening when Bukharin returned with his name being mentioned quite often. Then Pravda pronounced, quote, Tomsky, hopelessly entangled in his ties with the Trotskyist Zinoviev terrorists, has committed suicide at his dasha. Bukharin knew he needed to defend himself now that his friend was gone. In a letter to the prosecutor Vyshinsky and the Politburo, Bukharin writes, quote, not only am I not guilty of the crimes attributed to me, I can proudly claim that for the past several years I have defended the party line and Stalin's leadership with all the passion and sincerity I can command. In the context, I have to say that from 1933, I broke off all personal relations with M. Tomsky and A. Rykov, who formerly shared my ideas. This can be confirmed by questioning drivers, analyzing the journeys made by them, 
questioning sentries, NKVD agents, servants, etc. Now, in the background of this time is the industrialization of Russia based on three five-year plans instituted by Stalin. His plan to drag this medieval country into the 20th century and make it an industrial giant is a modern-day marvel. But the goals that he set for the people to achieve were preposterous. They were at such high levels that accidents were happening all the time because of the breakneck speed with which production was occurring. A major problem was that while production of heavy industrial goods were being pumped out at record numbers, quality suffered dramatically. This led to more accidents, as on the railways alone in the year 1934, there were 62,000 accidents. Stalin could not have blamed this on his policies, so the wreckers must be the culprits. And since the leftists were gone, the rightists, led by that treacherous Bukharin, must be the ones destroying the economy. Things within Moscow were tense. No one knew who was loyal to Stalin and who was going to rat them out. Lavrentiy, Beria, and Yezhov were gathering material to get rid of the last obstructionists to Stalin's complete control of the country. Bukharin went on a hunger strike to protest the accusations against him. He is quoted as saying, I cannot live like this anymore. I am in no physical or moral condition to come to the plenum. I will begin a hunger strike until the accusations of betrayal, wrecking, and terrorism are dropped. The plenum, a meeting of the leaders of the Communist Party, began on February 23, 1937. The plenum, though, was under a veil of darkness. As days before, the man once called the perfect Bolshevik, Sergo Orzhenokidze, committed suicide in much the same way that Nadia Aleluyeva had done with a gunshot to the chest. Officially, the death was caused by a heart attack, which was kind of plausible as Sergo was ill. Orzhenokidze killed himself as he and Stalin were no longer seeing eye to eye, and he knew that it was only a matter of time before he would be rounded up, arrested, tortured, and executed. He decided to go out his way, not by the hand of his old friend, Stalin. At the plenum, Yezhov began with a blistering denunciation of Bukharin, as did Voroshilov. Rikov and Bukharin were summoned to the plenum, and after they were found guilty of plotting against the state, they were arrested and taken away. Next, it was Yagoda's turn. He was accused of being a German spy since 1907, and he was taken away. Yezhov then ordered Yagoda's henchmen to inspect the provinces, only to arrest them at the train stations. The boss had another joke up his sleeve. Yagoda had to confess to the innumerable poisonings which he had loyally carried out for the boss, the murders of Mizhinsky, Maxim Gorky, and others. With all the old Czechists gone, Stalin turned towards his next target, which was to have massive implications in the coming years when the defense of Russia was at stake. He turned towards the military and the generals at their head. As the boss was quoted as saying, it was time to, quote, to finish our enemies because they were in the army and the staff and even in the Kremlin. He said this on of all days, May 1st, 1937, right after the May Day Parade, where the military marched down the streets of Moscow in front of the Kremlin.
What an ironic, twisted sense of humor displayed by Stalin, don't you think? The first target was Tukhachevsky, Stalin's most brilliant general, but one hated by Voroshilov. The entire high command was then arrested. Tukhachevsky, under incredible torture, confessed to being a German spy and implicated others. His signed confession had blood spatter on it. On June 11, 1937, the Supreme Court of the USSR found all the generals guilty of being traitors and spies and ordered their execution. Soon, five of the eight judges were executed themselves. Next up were senior military officers, as in Stalin's psychotic mind. The generals couldn't have done all this wrecking alone. By November of 1938, Voroshilov claimed that over 40,000 officers had been arrested and either shot or sent to forced labor camps. Almost the entirety of the officer corps were annihilated. But the bloodshed was only beginning. Now the Great Purge would reach its bloodiest heights. On July 2, 1937, a new terror was begun as a quota of killings and arrests were ordered. Order 447, presented and agreed upon by the Politburo, created two quotas. Category 1, to be shot. Category 2, to be deported. Numbers were handed out and quickly the quotas were met. Then things got really twisted as the three-man three tribunals created around Russia asked that the quotas be increased. As Montefiore writes in his book Stalin, the Court of the Red Tsar, about the coming terror, quote, In this, the terror differed most from Hitler's crimes, which systematically destroyed a limited target, Jews and gypsies. Here, on the contrary, death was sometimes random. The long-forgotten comment, the flirtation with an opposition, envy of another man's job, wife, or house, vengeance or just plain coincidence, brought the death and torture of entire families. This did not matter. Better too far than not far enough, Yezhov told his men, as the original arrest quota ballooned to 767,397 arrests and 386,798 executions. Families destroyed. Children orphaned. Under order number 447. Interestingly enough, Stalin pulled another publicity stunt to deflect the blame for the ongoing massacres from him. He disappeared from public view, appearing only three times in 1937 and 38. People began to bring up that little father image, the Batushka, who was obviously not aware of what his evil ministers were doing behind his back. Railway men were being accused of being wreckers, and so many were shot that there was one train line that was about to go totally unmanned if any more people were killed. Those closest to Stalin would not go without fear as chauffeurs, secretaries, and aides were arrested sent to exile or shot. Then some of the wives of the top leaders were being picked up and accused of being spies. Paranoia was at a fever pitch. And let's make it clear, these purges were not just limited to Russians. The USSR was a vast nation of many nationalities. 
These people were to be eliminated in mass numbers. Groups included Western emigres, like Americans, who came over during the Great Depression, Finns, Canadians, and Germans. The Polish, who lived within the borders of the USSR, were brutally repressed, with tens of thousands dying. There were two other major purges going on, one in Mongolia and in the Xinjiang province, where so many were killed that bodies were still being uncovered as late as 2003. By mid-1938, Stalin knew things had gone just too far as whole swaths of Russian society and industry had vanished, and the looming war with Germany would need as many able-bodied men and women as they could muster up. But how to bring an end with the bloodlust of the NKVD disciples? The answer was simple. Arrest and execute all of those dastardly men who ran the purge, because the good boss Stalin was unaware of the atrocities, and now that he found out, things had to come to an end for the good of the people. The first to go was Nikolai Yezhov himself. Many called the purges Yezhov Shechina, which basically translates to mean the Yezhov regime. Yezhov was first removed from his post as the head of the NKVD, replaced, replaced by Laurenti Beria, and then executed in 1940. So you might ask, how many people were murdered during the Great Purge? We have a number of different opinions on this subject, starting at the low tens of thousands, which is pretty preposterous, to a number of more, maybe more realistic of 681,692 shot and 1.5 million arrested. This was done in just two years, 1937 and 1938, which means an average of a thousand executions a day occurred during this time frame. During the Tsarist regimes from 1825 to 1910, 3,932 people were executed for so-called political crimes, which averages to less than one a week, from a thousand a day to one a week. What a difference. But recent evidence after perestroika suggests that a more ghastly number of over two million executions really occurred, as a lot of the evidence was covered up by the KGB, starting with Lavrenti Beria. In 1956, Nikita Khrushchev would begin the rehabilitation process of many of the people killed during the purges by denouncing Stalin and his tactics in a speech at the 20th Communist Congress in February of that year. Convictions for many were overturned, for whatever good that did, as they were all dead. Some Stalin apologists claim that the boss was not the mass murderer that history has proclaimed, as it was his overzealous underlings that carried things too far, but this claim is also preposterous. Stalin personally signed off on 357 lists to execute over 40,000 people. He made notes on reports of many interrogations to continue torturing people until they confessed to trumped-up charges. According to Dmitry Volkogonov's book, Stalin, Triumph and Tragedy, Stalin was quoted as saying, quote, Who's going to remember all this riffraff in 10 or 20 years? No one. Who remembers the name of the boyars Ivan the Terrible got rid of? No one. Sorry, boss. There are many of us who remember. 
Join me next time as we recover as we cover the beginning of World War II with the non-aggression treaty signed between Germany and the Soviet Union. Today's focus is on Marshal Mikhail Nikolaevich Tukhachevsky. Born into a noble family on February 16, 1893, he graduated from the Alexandrovskoy Military School in 1914 and joined the Semyonovsky Guards Regiment soon thereafter. During World War I, he served bravely, but was captured by the Germans early on. Tukhachevsky turned out to be a veritable Houdini, as he escaped from prisoner-of-war camps five times. The final time got him all the way back home in October of 1917, just in time for the Bolshevik Revolution. He joined the Red Army despite his noble ancestry and became an officer. During the Russian Civil War, he successfully defended Moscow from attack, defeated both white army generals, Alexander Kolchak and Anton Denikin. He also suppressed the Kronstadt Rebellion in 1921. As a firm Bolshevik, he was known to be incredibly cruel, oftentimes using poison gas on enemies and executing prisoners at the drop of a hat. But the signature battle in his career was to be his downfall and was to make him a sworn enemy of Stalin, and that is the Battle of Warsaw during the Polish-Soviet War of 1920. He lost the battle decisively, although much of the blame should have been laid on the meddling of the Soviet leaders in Moscow and the officers who routinely disobeyed his commands. Stalin, though, would have none of the excuses and laid blame squarely on Tukhachevsky. Stalin dubbed the general Napoleonchik, or Little Napoleon. There were rumors that Tsukhachevsky had planned to try to overthrow the Politburo. This was used later to drum up charges of him being a German-aligned traitor in 1937. His theories of battle were used extensively during World War II, especially the one called Deep Operations, whereby combined attacks on the rear of the enemy lines were to be launched to debilitate the enemy. Two of the famous battles that utilized this theory was the Battle of Stalingrad, and Operation Bagration. By 1935, Tukhachevsky was named a Marshal of the Soviet Union. In 36, he traveled throughout Europe to investigate their armies. Stalin viewed Tukhachevsky and the army as the only thing between him and absolute dictatorship. So on May 22, 1937, he was arrested and brought back to Moscow, where he was tortured until he made a full confession. As Montefiore puts in his book on Stalin, quote, A few days later, as Yezhov buzzed in and out of Stalin's office, a broken Marshal Tukhachevsky confessed that Yenokidze had recruited him in 1928, that he was a German agent in cahoots with Buharin to seize power. Tukhachevsky's confession, which survives in the archives, is dappled with a brown spray that was found to be blood-spattered by a body in motion. On June 11, 1937, the Supreme Court put Tukhachevsky on trial, and by 11.35 that evening, he was found guilty and sentenced to death. An hour later, NKVD Captain Vasily Blokin shot Tukhachevsky in the back of the head. When Khrushchev came to power, one of the first things he did in 1957 was to rehabilitate Tukhachevsky and declared that he was innocent of all charges. 
Interestingly enough, there is evidence that Tukhachevsky may have indeed been planning to overthrow Stalin with members of the NKVD and the Red Army when evidence came up that Stalin was indeed a one-time spy for the Okhrana, the czarist secret police. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Uh, I will be taking a week off. I know I said that last week, but I had this script already pretty much written, and I figured I'd give you guys this one. But I'm going to take some time so I can uh, get ready for World War II, um, the battles between Hitler, Stalin, and the political marksmanship that occurred afterwards with Roosevelt and Churchill. So please don't forget to come by the website at russianrulers.podhoster.com or visit us on Facebook in the Russian History fan page. And by the way, we will be creating a new website, uh, russianrulershistory.net, and uh, we'll be posting uh, pictures and maps and things like that on there. And uh, hopefully we can uh, have people just join us in and uh, make some comments. So uh, don't forget, you can... Ask a question, leave a comment, or make a suggestion at these pages. And now, as always, das vidanya i spasiba bolshoya.